Hello, everybody! Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Ah, it's good to hear the old catchphrase from you. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, the return, finally, we have Dylan. Welcome back, Dylan. We missed you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I missed being on the pod. (laughs) uh, I'm ready to talk so fast with my friend, Charles. I want to just say, hi, I'm still, I'm okay, everyone. I'm alive. I'm here. I appreciate you calling for backup from, I, I feel like you called for backup from probably the Two most likely sources over there with your mom and Derek. It's yeah. like the people you would have called for backup from since way back in the <laughs> in the good old days. That's true. And I, for the record, I, I heard you and Derek speculating on whether or not I would be listening. And I, <laughs> I did listen to the episodes. Good. Okay. I was going to say, I was I, wondering if you heard because I was like, I'm, I don't know many more people after this. <laughs> Yes, I've got my mom and the other member of the M crew, and that's the you know that's about it. Right? Yeah. No, those are those are awesome episodes. I was like really enjoying. I got I got some good tips from your mom as to what kind of books to really check out with uh, with trying to get you to cry with that mission. Make Charles cry. Don't worry, me and uh, the Fong of Emberlane. We have not forgotten about that. Um, right. And then, yeah, you listen to you and Derek chat Star Wars. I mean, classic yeah. Roger Roger. It was basically a Roger Roger pod takeover. It right? basically it was, yeah. But yeah. we're excited to have you back. This will be, you know, we had a re-release Friday, and then now this will be Monday mm-hmm. that you will have returned. And we're very happy for that because I could not record this with anybody else no. because today is the day we had promised this for a while and we are finally delivering it is my pleasure to say that we will be <laughs> discussing red country the third standalone novel in the first law universe written by the one the only joe abercrombie we're here today yeah we're d- actually doing it I know. <laughs> we're finally I mean, doing it <laughs> Talking about Red Country with you, Charles, has felt like a preposterously long time coming. It's and this is interestingly my my favorite of the three standalones, which puts me in a minority. This puts yes, very clear minority. We ran a poll on Twitter, and it was basically a tie between it was which is your favorite of the three Joe Abercrombie standalones. It was a tie between Best Serve Cold and The Heroes. And then it was like nine percent of the vote or something. <laughs> Very small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I really enjoyed this book for the record, but I kinda am siding with the general populace on this one. It's like fifty fifty between Best Serve Cold and the Heroes, and then this is an obvious like 
rung underneath. But that's not <laughs> to say that it wasn't good. And I, I'm like, this has been a long time. We have never co- talked about this book together before. So we're finally getting to share our ideas on this yeah. one. That's very exciting. But before we do that, we have a few spoiler warning things to do. Sure. Right, Dylan? Yes. So... We're going to be discussing Joe Abercrombie's First Law Universe up through Red Country, which means that this will be no holds barred for that series up to that point. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't read the original First Law trilogy or haven't and or haven't read the uh Two standalones leading up to this. That's best served. All the standalones. And the heroes. Yes, all the standalones. Yeah, that's true. If you haven't read all of the standalones and the original First Law trilogy, then we won't be holding back on spoilers for those. So you don't want to hear that? Then might be a good time to turn this down in your headphones and yeah, pick up those books that you haven't read yet because it's (laughs) it's Joe Abercrombie. Uh, fans with Joe it's Abercrombie. So we sure. have to say, you got to check those out. That's <laughs> if we can't endorse a, if we can endorse anything, it's going to be Joe Abercrombie and his books. So highly recommend all of those. And for those of you who are still sticking around, it's time to get into some incredible Joe Abercrombie goodness in red country yes we do and we can't really get into it without me sharing my reaction right off the top Mm -hmm. that we have the return of logan (laughs) nine fingers i kind of knew this was coming you know this was not like a huge secret for me but yeah they they tease it by introducing lamb and you know when they introduced lamb i had no idea that this was logan but very very early on very early okay he says one of his isms and i knew right instantly from there but um and to me it was just so fun i was like oh boy he didn't actually like drown and get washed away in that river at the end of uh last argument of kings you know everyone's been kind of referring to him throughout these standalones and he's kind of like a myth at this point some people Mm -hmm. aren't sure if he's dead some people are convinced he's dead and then here he is living a peaceful life out in the country under for the now. pseudonym of Lamb for now at the beginning of this book. And the only other thing I want to say before we get into the plot while we're talking about Lamb is that I admire Abercrombie's commitment to not acknowledging the name Logan yes. at all. Like he does, he goes as far as he possibly can to say this is Logan. Besides straight up saying this is Logan, he hits all the isms. He mentions the nine fingers. He mm-hmm. has other characters reacting to him, being like, "I know who you are." He, you know, Shivers comes and makes an appearance at the end, which was great. And they had all these moments, yeah, like but he's cool. committed to living in the perspective of these new characters and these new characters do not know his name and Lamb is not going to say it. And that's one of the things that I thought was just super fascinating about this book. And when we do eventually <laughs> do our discussion on like Abercrombie and the power of the POV, this is such a huge part yes. of it. It's just the commitment to this story while also building off of all these books before that built up Logan as the main character and now we're he's off to the side and we're getting him in a totally different perspective and that to me was one of the most rewarding things of reading this book well said Charles yeah I'll say that Abercrombie 
as a rule, from what I've been able to see, does not repeat point of views across books. Mm-hmm. Or it's a, let me rephrase that. Uh, he doesn't repeat point of views across separate like entities, meaning that, of course, he does in the original trilogy repeat throughout the f- three books. And right. He repeats uh, in Age of Madness. So the trilogies, he's got POVs, and then in yes. Best of Cold, and then the Heroes, and now Red Country. Those three books in that trilogy don't repeat POVs. Yeah. Once a series or a standalone book has used a point of view, point of view character as a point of view character that character will never have to this point will never have a point of view in a later book is i guess what i'm saying or later series or it's hard to say it with the standalones but i'm hoping folks are getting what i mean like right you know once a point of view has been used in this yeah and and everyone that's right up to this point is probably realizing this like yeah it's true we only got shivers once we only got Costco Mm -hmm. once you know we only we and we never get land because he's from the original he's an original character pov so all of these uh all these things it it, it leads to a really and abercrombie loved to do this even the original trilogy was to describe people both in their heads and outside using other people's povs and he was like telling jokes that way he was having fun that way and he's also developing character that way in a really fascinating way and you know dylan we had our a whole character episode committed to talking about Logan Nine Fingers as a yeah. character, and I feel like a lot of what we were kind of circling around towards the end is is being almost highlighted here, and his whole theme of how good of a guy was he really? How much is he really a reluctant, violent person, and how much is he like embracing and seeking this violence for himself? And mm. it's like after us having that conversation, I was super fascinated to see where where lamb went in in the story yeah and it's interesting charles there's on my book cover Mm -hmm. this part of why i was like "Ooh, charles you didn't uh you didn't know it was coming or whatever because i don't know did you audiobook with Stephen Pace? I did, but I did, you know a long time ago i saw the cover for red country and i counted the fingers You got, that's where I was going exactly. It was There's a guy holding a sword and there's a distinct missing finger and this is Jarber Crombie and Charles, you're, you're a bright man over there. I knew you could connect those dots, but I was thinking maybe you just haven't seen the cover. So yeah, yeah the Lamb, cover of the yeah. audiobook is like a square version of the cover that's, mm. you know, popular yeah. As like when it shows like these standalones have different characters like a really close up where it doesn't show their eyes usually but it shows their like mouth and face and arms and hands yeah. and stuff so uh, yeah I, and I knew he was I knew he wasn't gone just because I've absorbed like I guess you'd call them spoilers or whatever it didn't really spoil the reading experience for me but I knew he was coming back and I was like oh I wonder where and then of course Lamb within the first couple chapters drops an ism and I was like oh lamb's logan i got it you know so that was that was fun for right. me to to have that realization and props to abercrombie for keeping it close but he's not a main character in this the main character i would say one of them is shy south and lamb yes. is like her stepfather and then she has two kids mm-hmm. Roe and pitt and it's when Roe and pitt get abducted and carried away that kicks off this adventure and it helps establish like the time and place in Abercrombie's world we've gotten the sense just from the heroes 
and even from like the end of the first law trilogy that this world was changing that magic was leaving the world and you know, technology was coming in and we got to test cannons last time but this is like a really distinct jump forward in time and now we're in this like western gold rush era kind of mm-hmm. uh, of setting and it's it's a bold move to change your world irreparably into something totally new and t- to tell a standalone story like really bold and i don't know i, th- I thought it was fun yeah, no, I I love how Abercrombie's world evolves, how you get to see how characters are influenced by prior generations of characters, which is right. something that we really get to see here where it's like shy, she's a complicated character and we'll get into it more throughout this, but mm-hmm. something that I really like to see is how someone who was basically raised by Logan Nine Fingers in the way that Logan kind of tried to have his influence on Jazal, but Jazal was yeah. was pretty deep in his uh, <laughs> his own narcissism, his own story. I think I think Logan did help Jazal grow, but that being said, he had a lot uh, further to dig out of the hole of narcissism that Jazal was stuck in. Mm-hmm. Shy from a much younger age got to hear a lot of Logan's wisdoms and his axioms and all these things. And you get to see how someone like Shy might be able to grow into a person who can actually do good things and potentially live a fulfilling life, even in this really messed up world. Mm-hmm. By trying to pick and choose and understand what lessons Logan actually has to teach her and what things are actually super helpful. And even if Logan can't, you know, Logan can't always learn himself from those lessons, you get to see this like, okay, this early generation of characters from Abercrombie's world has Logan and he actually does have things to teach us. I feel like he's taught me things personally. You know, I've seen several of our early episodes that it's like, I just think as I'm going about my life, I often think like, once you've got a task to do, better do it than live with the fear of it. And that's good advice. But it's like, what happens when these past generations can impact our Right, but it's interesting. Shy or new characters is awesome. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's true. But then you consider like Shy's opinion of Lamb is not that great. <laughs> she calls him a no. coward. <laughs> Some kind of coward. Yeah, and is convinced yeah. that he he's like a bit slow too. And she's like, this guy, like good thing he has me to take care of him because he's hopeless. Yeah, yeah which is kind of funny to, to think of Lamb, of Lamb that way. And we know Lamb is willing to, you know, he's he's seen it all. And to him, this is like as as good as life gets is to be kind of this more humble character. And it's interesting to see him like fully embody that at the beginning of the story. Like he's yeah. obviously raised these kids and worked on this farm for a long time. And all these people, all these characters know Shy, Rowan, Pitt know is Lamb. They don't mm-hmm. know Logan or life before like from the trilogy from the original trilogy and it's interesting to see lamb committing to this advice that he always used to give that no one was able to seem yeah. to follow in the first law which is like look just find a nice place settle down avoid violence you know forget what good is power and scores and strength mm-hmm. and all these things like it just gets you into trouble and he's lived that committedly 
until now this point when Rowan Pitt are abducted and you see all that start to kind of crumble throughout this book slowly but surely until we get to all these crazy action pieces at the end and all this but it's fun to see him start off in this way committed to this life that he had always been preaching and it's can he hold it or not is this his true nature or not that we come to find out throughout the story that's so well said charles yeah that's kind of logan's journey i would say throughout this this book is yeah, he's made us very sincere. It's been, I'm trying to get the amount of time right, Charles, and maybe you know it better than me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's been decades yes. of trying to do this. I think 10 years and after Best Serve Cold is when this takes place. Gotcha. 10 years after Best Serve Cold. So then how many years is that after? Either way, you know, at least a decade. Uh, someone... We he is significantly we older. You know, he's got Long like a white time. beard. He's talking yeah. about how old he is. Like the world has changed around them so much. It's it's definitely been a while. Right. And so he's been at it. This isn't like six months here. This is like he's really been at it and he's been successful to this point and he gets pushed toward his old habits again when violence arrives at his doorstep and it's kind of like it's when you're tempting, yeah <laughs> yeah it's like when your addiction returns like do when you have that one taste of it can you then still resist mm. and we get to see logan because i think it's a battle with addiction oh definitely is what logan's dealing with yeah addiction to violence mm-hmm. and he's been abstinent for a long time mm-hmm. But what happens when he gets another taste of it is kind of yeah, the story. And that's an apt comparison to say Logan is addicted yeah. to violence really kind of contextualizes his character because he's basically been sober for all of this time. And then now all of a sudden all this violence is going on along around him and he's kind of scared not knowing what he's going to be able to do what he's going to be able to hold back or embrace or anything of that nature. And yeah, it's true. And we we get a bunch of fun action pieces with with Lo, with Lamb before he, it, it devolves into the ending. But yeah, can I speak to? I've always thought about why Abercrombie chose the name Lamb yeah. here, mm-hmm. and to me, it's always been. I have no idea, but it's always been. I've always speculated that it's been a play on this kind of like wolf in sheep's clothing idea mm, and lamb it's like right yeah. so lamb if it was sheep i think it'd just be too much on the nose and brings up all these connotations but it's very i think abercrombie and if he goes well i'll call him lamb <laughs> and a lamb is this kind of docile you know brings up those same ideas of a sheep and the wolf in sheep's clothing is underneath the lamb exterior that's true we have the bloody nine the most violent man maybe in the whole world <laughs> that. so yeah that's an apt kinda, observation yeah. And I totally, you know, agree. It, it kind of works in multiple ways. You know, they, they're both kind of shaped the same. They both start with the letter L and they're both short yeah. names, Logan, Lamb. They're very similar. Lamb in that he's embraced this docile lifestyle. You know, he's committed to being a gentle, nonviolent person. And then this this idiom of, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing is a very apt uh characterization of his arc in this story so yeah i just think the fact that it works on so many levels you know it had to have been Mm -hmm. a calculated 
uh, choice for sure. So yeah, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> That's a great point about the sheep's clothing I've thing. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we, you know, Shy and Lem at the beginning of their journey, I guess we'll talk really quickly about the character Leaf, who makes mm-hmm. an appearance in the story. Leaf is also someone like Shy, who has lost a brother to the kidnappers and wants to go on this journey as well and they form this troop and what's interesting about leaf's character is as soon as we're introduced to him and get him built up like he's gonna be a member of the fellowship he's gone and it's a really interesting creative decision to build him up and then and then pull the rug out from under him yeah it's very abercrombie and i think yeah yeah, you're touching on such a good point, which is this idea that Abercrombie, he knows the expectations that people are going to have. Oh, it's this young boy who's also seeking the same kind of things as them, and he's going to be a part of this. They're literally calling it a fellowship. Yes, yes. Summer. And it's like, company, fellowship, yeah, they go through yeah. the words. So then jumps on board and... We're ready for him to like grow into a hero. If we, at this point, maybe we've reached, like, if you've been reading Abercrombie all along, maybe you're ready for this, <laughs> sorry, this like subversion. And I think that it's, yeah, it's again, I always think of when Abercrombie subverts as it's not an attempt to deliberately just turn something on its head for the sake of turning on its head. I've always thought of it as like, well, what would really happen if a boy who is completely unprepared to contribute to this extremely violent world as they travel through this sort of Western setting with tons of dangers, Mm -hmm. what is most likely to happen to him out there? Mm -hmm. And And they're getting into these battles and stuff. And it's like the most likely outcome, unfortunately, is that he dies because he's not prepared. And it's this classic Abercrombie, you have to be realistic about these things. And I see it more like that than it is like, ooh, look at me, I subverted this stuff again. And right. I think sometimes Abercrombie people like to, or I don't know, like to, but sometimes people think of him in this like, he subverts for subversion's sake right. way, but I think he just subverts for realism's sake. And that's how I feel believe thing. Yeah, that's how I see it as well. I think he honestly was trying to build this character up as someone that could have been a you know, a main part of this fellowship, a main presence in the mm. story, and whisk them away because, I mean, th- there needs to be stakes when the ghosts attack, right? There's yeah. this whole thing about Sweet going behind the fellowship's back, right, mm-hmm. and, and talking to the ghosts, and then the ghosts attack, and they lose a couple people. They lose uh, the preacher, they lose Leaf, you know, and it was very, like, unceremonious the way... Leaf was just kind of killed off screen in a, in, in, in a way, and it happens so fast. It's like, oh, Leaf is gone. And it's like, oh, well, like that is bad. And, and Shy does feel guilty about it, but she's got to move on pretty quickly. So I, I think all of those things wrapped together deliver more thematically than just subverting a trope of, oh, not every character makes it to the yeah. end just because you like them. It's like, well, there's a lot at stake here, and there's a lot of danger here. And not everyone can can make it. So that that's yeah. that's leaf. And 
someone else comes along and joins the fellowship as well. And this is a character that I really enjoy, and that's Temple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd love Temple. Temple's yeah. great. I'm a big Temple fan. Yeah, because Temple... I feel like you tend to like these characters. I love Temple, too. I I think I gravitate more towards Shy, which probably is not surprising mm. for you to hear that. Mm-hmm. But I think that Temple, he's just kind of this, like, he's trying his best. He's kind of thoughtful, but he's not this, like, take action, let me take control of my own life, take initiative kind of guy. He's kind of just, like... I'm doing my best. Like, I really am trying to be a good dude, but how do I do that in this weird world where everything I try to do, somehow I end up on the wrong side of things? So this kind of like, I think you have an easier time with these like reluctant characters than (laughs) I I do. I love Temple because I think he's just, he's like charming and kind of the self-doubt is interesting with him. And I see this a lot. I, you know, I do work in vocational psychology as part of my grad program. And I see people sometimes like Temple, where Temple has like a ton of talent at all these different things. He could be so many different things. And he almost has this uh, um, paradox of choice thing going on for him, which is like there's so many things he could do. And then everyone tells him he's good at it. And then he's like, what am I supposed to do when I could do anything? <laughs> and I don't know. He's just a very interesting character. He's kind of in this journey of trying to find his calling. And yeah. that's uh, that's a topic of interest to, to me. Yeah. He, yeah. he often describes himself as cowardly, which is in part yeah. true. But in another part, you can kind of empathize with him a bunch of times. I know mm-hmm. one of these first instances is when he bails on famed soldier of fortune Nikomo Koska of course yes. who also makes a return along with another like original first law trilogy character Pike makes an appearance yeah. as he's the um he's the head of the inquisition superior yeah he's superior he's a superior oh yeah, yeah. and that is not arch yeah, he's not, not the arch, arch lector but, that's Glockta yeah. but he is mm-hmm. the superior he's Glockta's former role which is fascinating right. because when the first law trilogy ended, Glockta was kind of taking Pike under his wing through the metaphor of torturing salt. You know, this idea of like coming full circle, being from tortured to torturer to directing the torturing, right? That kind of vicious cycle that was described in yeah. Glockta's arc in the original trilogy is coming here where Pike is now calling the shots and he's actually hired Costco for some you know for you know, good luck with that and yeah <laughs> it doesn't tend to work out so well it's a bold move but, but it's you have to remember for, that Costco and, exactly you have it's, to remember yeah. that Glockta and Costco have an understanding and that we're able to yeah, work together successfully quite a few times <laughs> one of the only times in which a client and uh and the yes. uh, and the uh hiree were were you know, we're able to both come out of it mutually beneficial. And I, I just think because Casca, I mean, Glockta just enjoys like and understands people like Casca who aren't exactly. necessarily good or evil, but are like selfish and clever. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. And yeah, I think Casca's always appreciated Glockta from this perspective of like, two clever people who understand the world really well. Yes. And 
I think that, and didn't we have on one of those Who Would Win episodes, Charles, didn't we have like the random generator spat out a chess match between Galacta and Casca that we were supposed to speculate oh, on? Maybe, who would win. I think so. Like a, yeah, that right? would be a great match. That was one yeah. of the fun ones. So, anyway, point being, yeah. So, it makes sense why Pike under Glockta would be trying to work with Casca, but you can tell Pike at least at this point, has not reached Galacta's level of being able to actually, I guess, I don't want to say manipulate because it doesn't feel like anyone can really manipulate Casca, yeah. but ability to work, work with, with Casca. Yeah. And it's almost like Casca is the one of the most simple, he's a very complex person, but his motivations are so simple because they really do boil down, uh, especially at this point in the series, mm-hmm. to money can you offer him the most money for the minimal amount of work yes and glockta has always understood that you just like treat costa like he is lazy and like he only wants money and he will never let you down is <laughs> kind of glockta's approach with him <laughs> and i think that at sometimes people working with costa because he's this very complicated uh like with charismatic man can get lost in the weeds with what's going on with him but if you treat him like yes he will do the easiest thing for the most amount of money then that's a good way to do it and you see him kind of taking those uh those choices as much as possible but in this book but there's no glock to level mastermind around there to actually implement that properly as a like person to hire well so said it's, it's yeah pike one. seems to come off a bit too serious in these early mm-hmm. scenes uh, to kind of work with Costco. there's always a few select characters in the first law universe that see through what i would describe as the smoke and mirrors of society and human characters and ethics and all these things like there's a clock does there's Costco's, there's bias um, what was the name of the female POV in the last book? She was kind of like that as well. Um, she was able... Finry? Finry, talking yeah. about the heroes? Yeah, the yeah. heroes. Yeah, she was able to see through yeah. and I kind of have reach an understanding with Baez a little bit. And there's these characters that can just see through all of these things and they end up developing these like understandings with each other. So Casca mm-hmm. and Glockter are very much are very much like that. So when you have yeah. these scenes where oh Temple and his friend uh, Safine were trying to be like, mm-hmm. well let's give the the natives a chance to surrender and, and all these things and Casca's uh, like, oh sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and then yeah. just charges anyway. It, it's a beautiful thing. And that causes <laughs> Temple's friend to get killed and causes Temple to yeah. defect, and he runs into Shivers of all people. It gets attacked by yeah. ghosts, but Shivers helps him out, which Shivers is such an does, interesting. Shivers is kind of yeah. portrayed as this wild card throughout this whole yeah. book, and I really enjoyed it because we've gotten to know Shivers so much. Somehow, you know, he is like he was, you know, a presence. He ended up being quite a significant presence in the end of the first Law trilogy. Huge, obviously, POV presence in Best Served Cold, and then he played a very significant role at the end of the heroes and now here he is and he's yeah. kind of like unpredictable at these points established like oh i'm i don't believe that logan is dead and i'm going after him because and you're like whoa it's like what is going on here and yeah he's you never know if he's gonna just like kill you behind the back while you're in the middle of a duel or if he's gonna like share his food yes. with you and and protect you and all these other things Yes, and I feel like Shivers has, 
I'm a little reticent about saying this because I'm like, uh, it's a lot to say. It's high, very, very high praise for Shivers here. But I feel like Shivers might have my favorite arc all the way through the First Law universe, mm. which is like, I don't know, because there's like Logan, there's Clark, and I'm not saying he's my favorite character, right? but just his arc to take us from what we saw in the original trilogy then to being in each of the standalones and to come to where we'll get to the end eventually, but to come to the point he gets to in the end of this book, and I won't say anything beyond this point to keep from spoilers or anything like that, but I'll just say, yeah, I feel like his arc is of most like interest to me throughout this whole hmm. thing his arc interesting yeah, yeah. his is way up there he and like he's one of the few that has like a six book long arc on not fully yeah. six but like him and logan really and logan just kind of appears at in this book he's totally absent from the other yeah. two so it's they are some of the few characters that get that kind of treatment and shivers gets like as much treatment as possible Without, mm-hmm. you know, he was a main character once, and it, it's been significant because you get to see like his, what his intentions were and and how he's perceived by others. So, it's really powerful stuff, and it's kind of funny. Like I was reading this book, and I was like, okay, I know Shivers. Like they like it was like Chekhov's gun or whatever. It's like here he was yes. in the beginning. I know he's coming <laughs> back at some point. They act like this book is over, and I'm getting down to the last couple pages oh, yeah. here. But I know Shivers has to come back. And then when he did, I was like, ah, finally here we go and that's a moment that i'm looking forward to talking about but i, I don't know if we need yes. if we want to be jumping around can, that much can we just mention maybe this yeah. is coming up later but the casca and shivers moment is amazing oh i love too. the casca shivers one yeah there's a great yeah. quote in there that i had saved in our notes that i'm going to find oh, nice. right now yeah but the, they run into each other it's like oh some northman is like you know causing havoc in the tavern and Casca goes to investigate it's like oh it's my old pal Shivers how you doing buddy and it's like yeah. what <laughs> and and they have this whole back and forth he's got like one of his guys like Shivers has one of Casca's guys at, at like I got a knife to the neck it's like oh he tried to he tried to take my eggs or something like that yeah and it's like bad idea yeah. don't take Shivers eggs there was something where yeah. it's like never take eggs from a madman or something from a one-eyed man or something like that yes <laughs> never take Words eggs from wisdom. a one-eyed man write that down that yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that was Casca and he's telling him to write it down and then there's Tony this Sorbrick. yeah and then Shivers yeah. is like I'm going to find him and, I, and I'm going to get him he's like oh a man with a missing eye after a man with a missing finger there's a song in there somewhere I reckon, which is such a mm. great line because because it's yeah, true. It's like it's, it's the absurdity of it all that Abercrombie seems to always find in his stories. It's like what has like you guys are all missing body parts and still looking to kill each other, and it's like what's going on yeah. here? And it's just a funny musing from Casca. <laughs> well yeah, and Casca has reached this point of just all-out nihilism. I feel like by the end of this, and it shows up in so many interesting ways and i i don't know i think it's so cool from the perspective we've talked so much about grimdark lately we're on fancy for the ages talking about grimdark recently and you and i have it's just yeah the grimdark stuff we've talked about so much and of course joe abercrombie's got the twitter handle handle lord grimdark and is kind of associated with this and i feel like in a lot of ways casca has fully embraced the like this is a grimdark world and his cynicism and pessimism and nihilism 
are in a lot of ways, I guess, emblematic of being a character that's been alive for this long in an Abercrombie world. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm interested to, to talk some about how Casca's arc ends with his death in this. Right. And also, yeah, what that means about the stuff we've talked about with Abercrombie trying to move uh, away from being an all-out grimdark, known for all-out grimdark subgenre writing and, and moving toward a more balanced perspective, which I think I think happens in this book. Oh, it happens we'll, a couple times, you know, actually. Yes. This book is yes. one of the more hopeful, happy-ending yeah. stories of all of them. Mm-hmm. I would say this one probably yeah. has the happiest ending of all. Uh, I, I guess the saddest thing is Logan, you know, relapses but even then it's well, not, it's not yeah. so bad and we'll talk about the ending we'll talk about the ending because i have thoughts yeah <laughs> we, we'll have, get there. we need I to have, get there yeah. so let's get there quickly now because we have temple you know i love this moment where shy rescues temple and basically mm-hmm. brings him into this indentured servitude <laughs> and is like yeah. okay you owe me 300 whatever and like every time you do something i'll take it off your debt or whatever it's like oh you you like you know fix this thing you get this much money you know basically keeping him working for free forever kind of a thing and after this attack from the ghosts organized by sweet that killed leaf killed the preacher temple kind of takes up this preacher role and there's something ironic in yeah. that in that he's not really a religious guy he used to be a priest and then was kind of disenfranchised by the yeah. whole thing and left and now that this caravan of people this fellowship needs him he can step up and say things that people really like and he ends up being a really effective preacher in this in this fellowship even though he hardly believes a word that he's saying it's a really interesting very abercrombian kind of theme about you know religion and what these people believe in and and like how you know does it really matter if you believe in it or not if you're rallying the people and causing a positive effect in this troop you know is is really quite interesting to see temple struggle with that the fact that he does kind of struggle with it at times but still tries to do a good job i i think is uh, very admirable it is admirable, and of course he's named Temple is kind of adding <laughs> to this whole mix here. And he was there when in the Siege of Degasca, which we'll remember from before they are hanged, where Glockta's trying to, I guess you could say he's trying to defend the city. Temple does make a, a literal appearance in the book, but we know from, in Before They're Hanged, I'm saying, but we know from Temple's musings about his past that he was there for that awful, awful event. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, he was in the uh, the temple, I guess. Um, and I'm blanking on the name. It's like Kadia or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, who's the uh, the preacher who was interacting with Glockta a lot, kind of representing the Degaskin natives mm-hmm. there. Right. That was Temple's like, Temple's leader oh, of okay. his Glockta like order. had admiration that for that guy. Him. Yes. That was the guy who yeah, they entered the peace talks guy. and it's like, look, we'll deliver the chest. You can say whatever you want is in it, but there'll be nothing in yeah. it. And Oh, and no, that was a different guy. Oh, that was a different okay, guy. Okay. That was the uh, emissary. Who came oh, got it. So this was when Glockta was actually it. in Degaska. Yes. Okay, I'm with yes. you. It was the guy, but he. you're right that he had admiration for the guy, and it was kind of the guy who he would just kind of sit there during the meetings and then like come out with this 
this line that would tell everyone that it's all BS and things like that. And Glockta could kind of level with this guy. Mm -hmm. And Glockta was showing the native Degoskins a lot more... Oh, he was the representative you know of the saying? natives yes. in Degaska. Yes. Oh, okay. I remember yes. that character for sure. Yeah, Glockter did admire that guy. And that guy like stuck to his principles a lot. He, he did. He wouldn't sell out his people or his position or anything like that. And they were able to come to some kind of agreement, actually. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that guy died during the Siege of Degaska and Temple... I. Folks can uh, tweet at me. They, I'll, I'll give them my personal account to tweet at me uh, so you don't get bugged there, Charles. Can tweet at me at Delinar Marsh on Twitter if I'm messing this up. But I do believe that that character, I think it's like Cardia or Cardia or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. and was he died in Degaska and then he, Temple was there as a member of that temple. Oh, and kind of had to watch that happen. And that guy was a very noble dude who, yeah, stood by his guns, like you're saying, Charles. And then that's part of where Temple's kind of like, why would I believe in any of this stuff comes from where he had to watch a very devout, good person go down for what he believed in for seemingly no reason. Like this tiny, this fight between the Union and... um the Gurkish over this tiny piece of like what used to be a middle land, like not between the, not actually owned by either one. Right. And yeah, so he's kind of lost. He's lost his faith. Um, and who could blame him after uh, everything that he's been through? So, uh, yeah, that yeah. irony that you're and talking that, about. Yeah, that idea Charles of trying to there. find yeah. a purpose, find a reason to exist yeah. in this world is temples like biggest arc in the story and i like where it ends up it's always been this like hopefulness that we've talked about throughout the whole series that you know as much as abercrombie's lord grimdark we also say well there's these hopeful notes and temple is really starting to highlight uh, these themes but of course it's like the last standalone you have to read six books to get to this point but we really are starting to see this this more embracing and more explicit mentioning of of purpose and hopefulness and all of that and and Temple does a great job of personifying that okay. but right now he's struggling. Yes, and Charles, I just went to the first law wiki to get this this right. It is Kadia mm-hmm. and under Red Country for the first law wiki it says Temple is a former priest who served under Kadia and Dakaskins as was Safine apparently, uh-huh. the, his friend who died. And then they mentioned Katia a few times, and it's strongly implied that they lined up all the priests and asked him to step forward, and apparently Katia stepped forward and was killed to save the lives of the others. Nice. So he Temple watched that play out, and he's like, what is the point of any of this? I guess I'll just go be Casca's lawyer, <laughs> which is like ultimate giving up on morality as being Casca's lawyer. Yeah, and I love again this embracement of modern ideas. He's Casca throughout yeah. this whole story says over and over again that the world is changing because he's like a guy approaching retirement yeah. who was very much an embodiment of the old ways of this mercenary mm-hmm. life. And he's like, now the world is fought with like pen and paper. You know, he's able to understand that he can use the law 
to do what armies used to be able to do. And he's trying to get Temple on board with all of that and, you know, uh, groom Temple essentially to take over, which is kind of revealed at the end of all of this. But it's it's so interesting to see Temple and Casca like go at it and like have this hot and cold relationship. And Temple eventually just walks away from the whole thing. And I, you know, admire that about him. And it's also just interesting to see, like, Casca's point of view in all this, which is like, uh, you know, it's the law is the future. I rec- I see it coming. We always know Casca's right. uh, amongst all things, he's a survivor. And he'd be willing to throw yeah. away everything he grew up believing if it means getting coins today. So the fact that he's on the pulse of all of this and sees it coming is a really interesting sign of the times. But... Before we get into Casca again, we do have this interesting moment where, you know, the ghosts attack the fellowship and then, like, Sweet it has this relationship with the ghost. It's kind of public knowledge, but it's realized that he actually also has a partnership with them to scam people. But in this case, they get a meeting with um, to discuss a truce, right? And I think the guy's name is Sanjeed. And they're in these peace talks and Lamb just kills the guy. And I bring this up because, you know, it's the beginning of these cracks in Lamb's character where people are kind of shocked by his acts of violence because they don't know Logan Ninefingers. Like in the first Law trilogy, everyone knew who he was and what he was capable of. But people's perception of Lamb is that he's a gentle giant. And then they see him make these like really drastic, violent moves with excellent efficiency and like no emotion whatsoever he's just like bam you're dead it's like anyone else want to try and negotiate with me i'll kill you right now and everyone's like whoa okay (laughs) it's like it's the first big crack in the in the surface of lamb and people who know that this is logan and know logan's character are are, are like oh this is just the beginning of probably what's to come you know i read that and i was like oh boy lamb's coming back (laughs) we get the moment at like a saloon of sorts mm-hmm. where he does get violent with those. I think there's three of them or something. Right. And that one, that one felt like the first chink in the armor or whatever. But in that one, he was like provoked like and he was yes, like, guys, yes. leave me alone. You don't want to fight me. Right. And they're like, shut up old yeah. man. So he kills them like right. maybe a bit violently, but at least in that one, it was provoked. This was a peace talk. This is just, <laughs> Cold, yeah, this is just the first cold blood. Yes. Like, oh, that's a bloody nine move. Right. That's not a Logan nine. Logan is more like what he did with the three in the saloon. Like, oh, you push me to this and yeah. in his head. If we we know from his old point of views, it'd be like, have to be realistic about these things. Yeah. And now they're just tasks <laughs> to get done. And it's like, okay, Logan. <laughs> like, good if you don't kill people, but we understand what's happening here. Right. And then we get this peace talk moment. And this guy was built up a lot. This uh, guy he killed. Sanjeed. And then he's just, Sanjeed. And then he's just like, eh. Uh, and they were about to come to a pretty reasonable agreement. Yeah. And Logan, <laughs> but the funny thing is too, and this I think reflects this. It reflects a lot of these discussions we've had about Logan, like our being realistic about Logan Nine Fingers yeah. episode that we did way back, mm-hmm. which is like not long after people are starting to paint Logan as a hero for doing it. Yeah, and. I think that reflects a lot of how Logan gets treated by a lot of the fan base and how we've kind of, we love Logan as a character. We oh, think yeah. he's an incredible, he's maybe, he might be my favorite character in the genre. Right. But that being said, we don't see him as a hero. Right. We, 
never have. And it's like, except, you know, maybe on our first read, we were seeing him like has moved toward that. But for a long time, we've never seen Logan as a hero. But meanwhile, just the place he's positioned in these stories ends up putting him in this like hero role. Mm -hmm. But it's easier to see from Shy's perspective than it was to see from Logan's perspective why this is a person who is acting like a wacko, even when he is being told by everyone around him that he's such a hero. So I, I don't know. That's part of what I love about Shai's perspective here is that we, I think we get more of a view into this stuff of why Logan is not a heroic person in his right. behaviors without as much of the Logan like telling us yeah. why. He <laughs> well, had we get to his actions on paper yeah. versus being going through his rationalizations. Well yeah, which again, if he's addicted to violence, he can talk himself into doing any mm-hmm. kind of act. But when we get it, and it's like, oh yeah, we're actually coming to peace talks with this respected leader of these people. It's like, oh, and then Lamb reaches across and just, you know, buries a blade in the guy's head. Right. And it's like, what? <laughs> Could, and Yeah. Here's the thing, Charles, and I've talked about this before, is like, I speculate on the extent to which the Bloody Nine is actually another personality, right. or if it's just what happens when Logan like sees White because he's going mm-hmm. angry. You know, we've I don't, I don't know if all of us have experienced like getting so angry that it feels like we're not like uh, even seeing straight or anything like that. But that's a human experience. That's not just like a multiple personality thing. Right. It's just a thing that happens sometimes. When, it's like if you think of like Colin West, right? Mm. He has moments where he gets furious and he's just can't even see straight and he does these really terrible things. But the way Colin thinks about those is like, wow, that's a part of me that's ridiculously angry. Right. But the way Logan thinks about it is I have this whole other personality inside of me. And maybe he does have a whole other personality. But I think part of what we get in Red Country is, does that even matter at the end of the day, whether it's another personality or not? Or does what is what matters the fact that they were about to have peace and then this guy just came in and killed (laughs) the person and made it way worse? And that's what's so excellent about having like the way Abercrombie decided to treat one of his most well-loved characters. He's so easily could have brought him back and given the fans everything that they wanted but he chooses to mm-hmm. com- commit to the lamb role and we know that the bloody nine is a thing that exists in logan but it's never acknowledged in this book it's just written yeah. as like oh something in lamb's face kind of shifted and he calmed down right. and he was able to kill all these people and like even he says oh shy don't come near me when I'm in, like, just stay here and let me handle this was something that comes up so often. And then Shy's like, what's going on here? You just tried to yeah. kill me. What are you talking about? And right. she, like, falls out of love with this guy that basically raised yeah. her. She gets scared that much, and he becomes that unpredictable that she's no longer comfortable confiding in him. It's such a brilliant thing that we know from Mm -hmm. knowing Logan, but because like you had mentioned Dylan, because we're just seeing the actions for the actions, they are alarming and they make him very unlikable to the point where you can like disown your own stepfather who raised you and protected you. And even now is still trying to save your siblings. You know, it's, it's incredible in that way. And that's like the shining moments of these books, this book particular. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I've heard people say like Red Country is really where I soured on Logan, and that makes sense yeah, because it's the point of it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's kind of it does feel like it feels like part of what Abercrombie is doing is saying, "Oh, wait, you didn't believe me that Logan is a bad dude." <laughs> Check out what it's like when you have a person who thinks of him as a good person and then watches his behaviors yeah. for what they are right. and isn't in his head about it. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just incredible. It's why I love Red Country. If I love Logan as a character. And to me, Red Country shines because of using Shy's perspective as a kind of... Shy's actually a much more like realistic, reasonable person. Yes. Uh, than yes. Logan yes. is. And I think she's just very pragmatic mm-hmm. and she's done bad things. She's done good things. She tries her best. And see, being in that perspective and seeing Logan's actions for what they are, I've just always loved that so much. And that, that's why Red Country is my favorite, is because watching Logan's journey through the eyes of someone who believes in him at the start. Yeah. I mean, so it's much, such great... Like, like, waivers, yeah. That's a great reason to have this book be your favorite. You make a great case, because it's true, there's so much payoff in this book. It, it, it signals, like, the end of an era for not only mm-hmm. the world of First Law, but, like, Abercrombie as an author as well, and a lot of these characters that people love, that we've always got these vibes on are now being explored in really complex ways it's kind of like turning the mirror back on yourself and seeing the ugly yeah. truth a little bit but it's like these I, I love logan he's he's like oh he's so badass in these first trilogy and all of his isms are so great and he's such a nice guy and it's like oh we don't we don't really want to see like the other side of his character you know it's almost uncomfortable and like you mm-hmm. said it disench it disenlightens me from the character but like that's what makes it so yeah. beautiful it, it it puts a stain on like the flagship character of first law but abercrombie's commitment to doing that i admire so much because this is a character you could have been like everyone's favorite logan nine fingers back for more fun and it's like no no people need to realize this character that i created for like all parts of him and i really want to explore this character more and it kind of highlights these less likable sides of him like this is not a likable guy no one's gonna say lamb's the best character ever it's like this was a dude we thought was nice and turned out to be not nice like what's great about that like if you if you read this book not knowing who logan was you wouldn't walk away being like best character in fantasy because of so much that rests on the shoulders of the original trilogy and it's such a brave move as an author to take your like your Mm -hmm. flagship character from your flagship series and just Mm-hmm. totally invert the <laughs> point of view of him and show the side of him it's so inc- it's so ambitious and ingenuitive I-, I i just love it well said charles yeah so let me grab this quote comes way later but it's so relevant to what we're talking about where logan's reflecting on his actions or lamb is mm-hmm. uh and he says i don't feel evil but the things i've done what else can you call them? <laughs> and that's just, it's a, right? Right. I Doesn't mean, that say it all? You don't think you're that, but then you take a real look at your actions for what they are. And you almost kill your own like stepchild that you love. Yeah. And you, 
mess up these peace talks and all the other things we saw him do in the original trilogy. Oh, I mean, yeah. Kill Tolduru and like... He he killed, know, like, um, what's his face, his son. He killed, right, Thunderhead. Yes. Yeah, he's... Uh, rattle, let me get... No, beloved of the moon, Kamiki Fail. Yeah. Kamiki Fail's, Fail's kid. kid. Yeah. 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 All these things and it's like... He, Logan stepping back and just saying, hey, like when you're in it, when you're you, you don't feel like you're an evil person. He's always trying his best. He's trying to be a better man. But at the end of the day, he's able to have these moments of like, look at my behaviors. How can I even justify to myself at this point that I'm not evil? Right. And right. And there's, you know, there's so many moments that that highlight this I, I remember like when lamb fights a Ordinor, who is the one who kind of yeah. takes in roe and lamb and kind of indoctrinates yeah. roe into this family makes her feel loved and all of that and lamb uh, you know the way lamb wins is by going to actually kill roe and Wardenor, or however you say his name, sacrifices yeah. himself to protect right. her. Wardenor, I think. Wardenor. And Weirdener. it's like, this is Lamb. Lamb is someone who was in our like bloody rage about to kill Ro, the person mm-hmm. he set out to save. Yes. And it's it just shows the whole farce of Lamb's entire philosophy on violence. He's like, oh, I'm here to save Ro. That's why I'm on this mission. That may be, but you're also having no problems killing her too because this was just your outlet for violence. And right. it's how he wins this battle. It's just like incredibly fascinating. It's, it's again, we, we know that we, and there's always this doubt, right? Because it's never confirmed whether the Bloody Nine is a condition or just mm-hmm. Logan, like a part of Logan's actual character. But it doesn't matter in these in these moments. Mm. He's scaring the people that he loves, and eventually he recognizes that he has to leave and be alone. And it's just right. that that is his arc essentially is that this is who I am. I, and if that means I can't be around other people that are good, then I have to go kind of a thing. And so, and yeah. Yeah. And I guess, should we just get into that? Yeah. Then, Charles? Let's get into it. We're saving that, but I actually think of that as Logan's redemption. Yes. Is his choice to leave. Oh, for sure. And there's some people I've heard people call it like him giving up. And I'm like, this guy tried for a long time yeah, to you, do better. You can tell that that's the did. life that that, and, that he really yeah. wants is to just be with, or that's the his in his head his ideal life, and him coming to terms with the idea that he can't shake this violent side of himself, and that's just the kind of person that he is. Like no one's born perfect, and we have to accept our faults. His faults are pretty exceptional, and that he's like a bloodthirsty maniac addicted to violence, but he's embraced that about himself at the end and he's been fighting it his whole life with all of his isms and his quests and his do good mindset. And this is the first time in six books that this main character that everyone loves has acknowledged this fault in himself in a way that he's willing to like actually embrace it and accept it. Like, yes, he's, he's always said violence doesn't do anyone good. Leave that to someone dumb enough to do it like me. But he's act. You actually feel like his by leaving this family that he's able to, like, fully accept it in a way he really hadn't at the end of the first law trilogy. Yeah, 
That's so well said, Charles. And there's this quote that says, I love you, and then, but my love ain't a weight anyone should have to carry. Wow. And that is just, I don't know, it's like beautiful from yeah. Lamb in a way where it's like, uh, to the at a certain point when you have a full lifetime of hurting everyone around you, making everyone around you's life worse, the best that you could possibly hope to accomplish is to leave them be and let them just live their own lives, especially someone like Shy, who's been able to find a way. I mean, we've, we, we're way ahead of, uh, yeah, I don't know how much you want to talk about the plots. I think we just address all the like, endings at this it. point, yeah, considering yeah, yeah. where we are time-wise, and they're the best things anyway. <laughs> right, right. I mean, people know what happened in the book right. if they read it. So it's like, okay, yeah. So Shy and Temple reach this point together of actually seeming like you know they they are vulnerable with each other they kind of make up for each other's faults in a lot of ways they are better together than they are individually because of yeah they're just a good fit for each other and that's kind of the sense that you get Mm. and they seem both capable of actually living a fulfilling life together and raising these two kids and he lamb just doesn't see his place in that anymore the best he can hope for is that these things that spin through shy's head every once in a while like you have to be realistic about these things and stuff like that that she can wield those axioms better than lamb can and it's kind of this like hey like now you two take a shot at this you've actually got a real shot at this what can i possibly help with at this point besides going away so you don't like no one gets killed by the next person who tracks me down wanting to sell a score and he's he's lucky it was shivers who's always grappling with this sense of morality and, and what's right and we can get more into shivers too. right but before we do this you were talking about shine lamb and i love that final moment that you're talking about where lamb is saying that he has to leave and mm-hmm. shy is the first character in this whole series and i love this moment at the end of this book where she just straight up calls him out and one of the things that yeah. i've loved throughout this whole book is the context of shy saying you're some kind of coward and she said that from the mm-hmm. beginning when he was too scared to like stand up for himself in confrontations, his meek demeanor in the beginning, right? Which she misunderstood as being cowardly when yeah. in actuality he's just laying low, right? Oh, on the lamb. Another reason to oh, use lamb. I did, oh, my, I did. I did. In all my thinking, I never, which now I feel like... Well said. Charles. I hope people that well listen said, to the beginning have stuck yes. through to this part here. So me too. So they think they they actually got all of it. Yeah, exactly. Oh God. God! Thank you, Charles. Thank yes. you. That you know, did not I actually unironically was thinking he's on the lamb, and then I had to make the connection from there. So I, you know, even worse. Smart. <laughs> Yours is, who knows, I think it's more likely that Abercrombie was thinking about what you were saying than it is that he was thinking about what yes, I was saying. Yes, but I think saying, he was realizing was more and more yeah, the many, yeah. like, that's what, four layers now in which that, that name is a fun choice, yeah. like, you know? So, yeah, he's on the lamb, right? And he's laying low. 
but shy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he now it's he's a coward for leaving because he's not confront. He's like not willing to like make it work with his family, right? Because he says I'm leaving, and then she says you've always been a coward, and then Lamb says he never denied it and leaves, and that's the like this book ends, which right. it's. It's sad, but it's also such a finite moment, you know? It's such, like, a buttoned-up mm-hmm. thing for everyone's arc, where it's like, Lamb is like, I, ne- I, I never denied it, and now I'm embracing it, and now I'm doing something about it, and I'm leaving. And it's, you were a coward for not, you know, for being a meek person, and then now you're a coward for, like, leaving your family. And it's it's the sense of, like, did, did Lamb do the right thing to ride off in the sunset? And it's like they're probably safer without him but yeah is there ever a reason to abandon your family like it's it's such a it's such a complex finite moment i just love shy for calling him out on all of that and yeah oh yeah it's it's so refreshing because i feel like we've been kind of calling out logan and we've been a minority in that kind of voice and then to just hear it straight up through abercrombie's narrative being like you don't just get to ride off in the sunset like an epic action hero. You're a, you're a flipping coward. You are a coward. And he's like, I never denied mm. it. And Finn, you're like, what? Well, <laughs> so <yeah>. beautiful. <laughs> so so insightful, Charles. I appreciate your perspective there. And I've always thought about what does Logan mean when he says, I never denied it. Mm-hmm. And I think he means that the cowardly thing is his inability to this point point to walk away from violence Mm -hmm. right and maybe his inability ever to walk away from violence for good and the cowardly thing is to go back to his old ways of violence and at this point what he's tried to do is accept the fact that he's a coward and say i'm not brave enough to completely give up on violence Mm -hmm. i don't believe that i'm capable of that that takes more courage than i have yeah so what i do have the ability to do is to walk away and go be violent or attract violence probably both wherever i end up and that's how i think logan thinks of himself as a coward rather than that he's just a coward for i think he's he does still think he's doing the right thing by walking away but it's true and i think when he also says that he's never denied it like he's never had this opinion of himself that was like oh i'm the strongest person ever and i'll kill everyone he's always Mm -hmm. like had this self-loathing piece to him and he's always like i'll leave the violence to someone stupid enough like me ho ho And, and like you get kind of annoyed. He's like, that's not a good justification for your actions. You can't just say, I'm not a good person. I'm a violent person. I always make more scores. It's like you're choosing to do those things. And that's what makes him a coward. And I think the fact that he never denied that was like, oh, I've always made these justifications for myself, but I never fully believed them. And I think that is another layer to why he said he's never denied being a coward. He's like, I've come up with all so, these isms and these reasons and these excuses, but I'm accepting that, look, at the end of the day, I just really like violence as well. And I've never said right. that I didn't just like violence. And it's kind of like, a, that's why Shai's calling him out in these moments. Like, that's not an excuse to say that you've never mm. denied being cowardly is not a justification for being a violent person. 
Well said, Charles. And I think it's interesting to hear it from Shy because the way I think about Shy's arc from beginning to end in this series is she's holding this piece of her that she thinks she's a bad person mm-hmm. throughout because she killed someone and got someone else hanged because of it. Not on purpose, but stuff happens when you're being an outlaw. And that happened to her. And she's holding that this whole this whole book. And then... She's able to get her own redemption and forgiveness by basically telling Temple and having him be like, I accept you and love you anyway, Mm. even though I know the truth. And the way that Logan has chosen to try to deal with the fact that he has this ridiculously bloody past has been to hide it and to be a lamb in, uh, uh, sorry, to be a uh, wolf in lamb's clothing, if you will, (laughs) and to pretend he'd never had any of that bloody past, even though people could literally see it on his face because he's covered in scars and people can just see it. So Logan has chosen to try to get redemption by hiding from his past, and Shy reaches actual redemption in her arc by confessing her past to someone who's able to hear it and provide her with what in the you know in the therapy biz we'd call a corrective emotional experience <laughs> by saying, "Hey, no, I still love you even though you did that thing." Mm-hmm. And Shy can move on with her life because she's forgiven herself and sees other people forgiving her, someone she really believes in, forgiving her. Right. She gives that to Temple as well because Temple, Temple has his cowardly moment where he jumps out the window. Mm-hmm. And then she has every reason to walk away from him, but she forgives him for that. Right. And they both kind of forgive each other mm-hmm. for their pasts and their big mistakes temples thinks temple thinks he's always been a huge coward like you've mentioned charles and then he's forgiven for being a coward shy's forgiven for her own cowardice if you will or her own violence and like murder and uh, all this stuff Mm. the person getting hanged in her place and she's like i don't even know why i'm here all stuff they both accept and forgive each other and now it feels like they will move on and be able to be happy and logan has never been able to actually confess or f- like, or be, f- or forgive himself, or be forgiven by others, and that's to me why Logan can't move on. He can't accept his past and move right. Forward. And by not and denying being a coward, that's another yes. one of his excuses to ride off in the sunset right. instead of sitting down right. and having a long conversation and moving on with his yeah. family. And while you've hmm. opened that can of worms about, um, let's talk about Shy and Temple because. I- their yeah. relationship to me is so significant in like what these Abercrombie isms that we've talked about, like this idea of hope. And why I love Shine Temple as a couple so much is that they're both trying mm. to make sense of this world and find purpose and meaning and yeah. and like puzzle out like what can they get out of this like harsh like unforgiving violent place that they live in like what can they get out of it what hope do they have in just existing in this world and temples you know he's like we've said he's worn many hats he's tried many things he considers himself a coward he's done cowardly things but he's always in the pursuit of 
something and he maybe doesn't even know what the right ethics play is or moral decision Mm -hmm. is in any given time but he's always searching and and i think that's what shy kind of saw in him and that's why they made such a a good couple is that he doesn't know he doesn't claim to be perfect by any means or know what he wants out of life but he's always trying his intentions are clearly good and i think shy in a way thinks that likes being around that and the idea that you can be good even though you messed up or you're cowardly or whatever and then we get to the end of this book where they wind up together and in a happy relationship to me it's like look that's the whole point like when you read that Galacta quote way back when we did the Galacta character study about Mm. like look you take the little hopes the little victories that you can and Mm. bring good into the life where you can and you exist around that and that is what is being brought home in red country this embrace of like yeah, we may live in this red country but we it's these little glimmers of hope that we can carve out for ourselves the fact that oh i can own a general store and also a woodworking slash uh, legal office and be able to raise children and be in a happy family like that's that is it. That is the hopeful thing that we can get out of this. And well, that's not Charles. something you'd see in a grim dark novel where these two people, or maybe you no. would. <laughs> like, this is what grim dark's well, evolving into yeah. this whole glimmer of hope. Right. And maybe it's not grim dark anymore. Like, we know that Abercrombie doesn't like that phrasing to describe his work anymore. He's just kind of stuck in that's his Twitter handle, <laughs> but he's. He does see himself as moving on. I do too. And it's interesting because we've talked about, we've talked about this like John Gwynn's work. We've talked about this with Monstrous. That's, uh, yeah, Marjorie Lou and Santa Cata's graphic novel series and things like that is this idea of a world that is grimdark Mm -hmm. around people. But then how can people find their own meaning in a world that Abercrombie's world to my understanding, does not seem to have much objective meaning to it, mm-hmm. meaning that, like, the, there's not, it's not like Robert Jordan's, like, there's a pattern and the wheel of time and it all does it for a reason and all this kind of stuff. It's like, there's a line in here that's about how the world doesn't have meaning, and it's literally the world out, this is the, like, titular line, mm-hmm. the world out there is a red country without justice, without meaning. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we get these characters like Shy and Temple that, and and Beck honestly in the in the heroes yes. also does this. Yeah, kind of like are able to carve out their own subjective sense of meaningfulness in a yes. world that doesn't provide them with any clear direction Absolutely. of, like this is the purpose of your life. The, the, the Abercrombie's world's not going to give you that. Right. But you can try to find someone to be with that can make you happy in it. You can try to find a simple life and settle down. And Shy and Temple really seem to succeed at that in something Logan always told other people to do but wasn't able to so do himself. And in that way, I think Logan really kind of finds a little bit of a sense of meaning of like, if I get out of here now... The story I can tell myself is I prepared Shy and Roe and Pitt to have a fulfilling life and do better than me. Right. And he rides off into the sunset with that in his head. And I think that gives Logan a sense of meaning in this meaningless And it's why I find Lord Grimdark himself to be actually very hopeful because it's idea of like, look, the world is not going to give you meaning. You have to make it. You have to find it. And whatever it is, it's 
it's yours, right? What is you the meaning that you want to carve out in, in this? He creates this grim, dark world without meaning and justice, this red country, mm-hmm. right? But it's what the characters do and how they try to find their own meaning that I find to be very hopeful and very encouraging. Like, like this idea of Shy and Temple too. living a happy life together. I mean, what the heck is that? That's like the most hopeful thing <laughs> like ever. Right. And it's, and it's, it's a great way to send off this six book world that we've gotten. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, look, people are can be happy when they choose to find meaning for themselves and create right. these hopeful things for themselves and affect can, change where they can. Can I say too, Charles, something and, and that's so so well said. I'm trying to build on what you just said with what comes up for me, which is that I think part of why you and I find this ending to be so extremely hopeful (laughs) is because it feels so earned after that six book journey of like, holy crap, this always seems to go awry and this world is so messed up and these characters seem to be trying their best. But in the end of the day, the world is just too messed up for them. Mm. And then to have the standalones get this send off, like you're saying, of no, you can actually do this in a way that ends happy. It's just ridiculously hard and takes tons of work and forgiveness and acceptance. And and it's not glorious. It's just simple. That is, to me, why this sticks out, because it's like a beacon of like a, a light, like I don't know how to describe it, like a candle in the darkness. It's like it shines so brightly in contrast to the things that we've witnessed so far. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a happy ending in a Joe Abercrombie novel to me is, to it just like feels even more hopeful than a happy ending in a series by an author that kind of always gives it to you. It feels so earned. Right. And yeah, yeah it's so true. And to, to, to earn it in this series is such an accomplishment and i don't think anyone's been as successful as shy and temple um man there's so many more things i wanted to talk about like roe is super interesting but i think Mm. there's one character ending that we just have to talk about before time is up and that is nikamokaska fame soldier of fortune so let's talk about this man right now dylan i see you're just excited to share something so let's hear it Well, I, I want to talk a little shivers too. Oh I think we yeah, covered shivers a lot of too. Him, but so shivers and Casca. I think we can are, end are on shivers if because sure. it's like one of those final scenes, and Casca aligns with shivers in the beginning there too. So yeah, so Casca's reached this point of just nihilism where he's like, I've had and lost and had and lost and had and lost mm. throughout my whole life, and the, the only thing by the end of it that he can see as having any worth to him is money like he has a lot i i'm having trouble finding i think i thought i wrote down the quote of it but he's basically like a single piece of gold is worth ten thousand promises is kind of the way that he's seen it because he's lived in this world so long and he's just reached this point of outright uh, almost it's like a weird like realistic like cynicism where the the part that most sticks out to me is when he has this moment with Werdener where Werdener is like legitimately Werdener tried his best throughout all of this. He tried to actually save Roe at one point. He seems to be collecting all of these children with hopes of giving them a better life. 
And all that said, he's kind of at this point where Casca, he's at Casca's mercy and he's trying to save all his his money toward the, you know, waking, waking the metal dragon. Um, and Casca is, is like, I want the money. I, you can't give me anything, any of these promises that are going to be worth more than that to me. I've been promised dukedoms. I've been all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then Werner says, I tried to do what was best. <laughs> and Casca says, which just feels like we've said, Casca is kind of, to me, feels like how Abercrombie sees the world in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. like a more direct way of of Abercrombie speaking to the reader. I can't say for sure. I don't know Joe Abercrombie or anything, right. but this is my sense after reading a lot of him, where he says, uh, so Werner says, I tried to do what was best. And Casca says, of course, believe it or not, so do we all. And then there's like a dot, dot, dot. It's like, friendly? And then Casca has him killed. Yeah. And that's the point that Casca has reached here, which is kind of this thing that I feel like we've seen throughout the first law universe to this point, which is each of these individual point of view characters are like always trying to tell themselves a story about how they are the hero. They are doing their best. Logan, we've seen that for so long. Uh, And it's the more introspective ones that, and oftentimes like people who do better things who are more like questioning if they're a good person like mm-hmm. we saw that from Kern and crawl a lot in the heroes so it's like oh i don't know if i'm gonna it's like everyone's telling you you're an actual good person it's like all that stuff that being said everyone's a hero of their own story and everyone's trying their best and casca has reached this point of almost like but that's not good enough yeah. it's not good enough to try your best and tell yourself that i don't even care anymore yeah and casca has lost it because he's so he's almost like too aware of what's going on around him here that he's given up. Yeah. And it's like you almost need to lie to yourself a little bit in Abercrombie's world to believe you have to lie to yourself or just like run away with like one other good person like Shy yeah. and Temple <laughs> tried to do. And it's like Casca's it, seen it all. And it feels almost like this, you know, this may be me trying to get too capital L literature about this. I know I get uh, some comments about this sometimes, but I'll say I feel I feel like when Abercrombie has Casca get killed off too, and killed off by Sorbrick, mm-hmm. the writer of his own, yeah, his own say, hired uh, autobiographer. There, yes, by a writer, mm. it feels like Joe Abercrombie mm. trying to finally put the final nail in the coffin. Of the grimdark way of looking yes, at things yes. as like everyone is trying their absolute best. I believe that, but they still suck yeah. is kind of Casca's way of thinking about it. And Abercrombie is saying, I'm, you know, I've written a lot about that and maybe I'm done now. Yes, and that's, that's the point. Done here. Yes, that's the point yeah. that I was going to make because it's absolutely true and it's so well observed, Dylan. And the, the further connection that I did not make was that it's a writer that kills Casca and the significance of that Abercrombie obviously being the author of the book because we've said for a long time that Casca was kind of like this this extension of voice from Abercrombie to comment on the world that we live in you know this red country as we say without meaning and justice and all that and someone like Casca just thriving in a world without meaning by being able to compromise his own morals and the sides that he's on and things like that to get ahead in the original trilogy. And I feel like this is mm-hmm. such a significant moment 
here in red country to see Casca on the edge of retirement, losing all purpose in this world and ultimately getting killed p- penniless with with nothing mm-hmm. it, it's it's a mark of the times that have changed and it's to me it's an obvious and it, i mean how more direct than having a writer kill him is it then yeah. like a conscious decision of not only the change in times of the first law as a setting as a as a setting for a fantasy series but also as abercrombie as a writer his philosophy is changing like one of the things for me it's like when you read a character who's like the johnny depp you know uh uh, mm-hmm. Jack Sparrow character where right. they're oh like they're they're charming they play both sides they're rogue yada 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 but Abercrombie's themes have become so much more complex than that since then like obviously there's subverting classic tropes and being grimdark and embodying all of that but it's gotten so much more complex than that and there's so much more these ideas of finding hope and meaning and you know in, embracing these parts of yourself and all these other things that have I, I think you know we've mentioned that from what we've seen Abercrombie tweet and post and stuff that he's also hit this point for himself creatively. It's like, I'm kind of moving away from these things. And this book, this the whole time through this book, it's very clear that the world is moving away from the first law. And Costco is kind of like the last holdout of the glory days of the first law yeah. as it was in the original trilogy. And, we know from even in the second book when we tried to kill Casca and it didn't pan out, you know, very Jack Sparrow like, very rogue like, you know, and right. he's back. But in now in this book, the betrayal of Temple hits so much deeper because we know he was betrayed by um, Mons Marcado, and these were the only two yeah. times he's really tried to let people in, and and he's been betrayed both times, even though he's loved them and things like that. And so it, when you see him, he's basically like totally lost it by the end of this when he realizes that he was betrayed by, you know, that that whole scene with the mayor, who I believe is Carla Dan Eider, mm-hmm. by the way, is the mayor. Yeah, it's, and, I believe so, too. That's a good, that's an astute observation yeah, on your first read. There, because Cos- Casca yeah. knew who she was, and they mentioned Degasca and all that, and right. I was like, what other what other woman could it possibly be? And Carla's a survivor. I gotta give her credit, too. Like, oh, she's yeah. a survivor, yeah. for sure. And even, like, going up, like, being on the wrong side of Glockta and still being able to succeed is, is very impressive. So, she's out there doing her thing, um, and they had that whole scene with the playwright, who was another, like, loaded gun that I was like, what are they gonna do with this playwright character that they wrote into this, like, this actor? And then they had that whole ruse oh, scene, yeah. which I was, you know, I could take or leave, but it happened and it was kind of fun, I suppose. And when he realized he was betrayed, he stands there with nothing and is like, he's said throughout this whole thing, oh, the times are changing. Like, I see it coming, but, you know, a man like me is from an older time and he's talking to Logan as well sometimes too. And it's interesting the people mm-hmm. he opens up to about that and he goes, you know, I- I've seen it all. I see the world. It's, it's, it's losing all of its magic, losing all of its meaning, blah, 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 to the point now where he's yeah. just, like, been so tricked, so betrayed, so penniless that he's, like, borderline ranting when the writer stabs him and kills him. And he's like, oh, my last words. Right. I had something for this. What were they? <laughs> oh, I remember. And then he's gone. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, <laughs> what a, like, sad change of the times, change of the guard that we have going with, with the end of Casca. I don't know. To me, it's felt like such a statement on the 
thematic yeah. shifts that Abercrombie's writing is going through to, to finally write off Casca, who, like we said for so long, was kind of championing this lawless nature of the first law series, and, and now he's gone, and mm-hmm. now we're supposed to enter a new trilogy, and it's like, well, what does that mean, and what kind of world are we going to step into with the new trilogy, and it's like, I'm excited to find out. I'm excited for you to find out too, Charles. That feels like it could be, it's so well said that I almost want to punctuate it and be like, well, let's get that sweet, sweet, that dab, sweet, sweet. <laughs> the dab, sweet, right? You haven't been getting a lot of credit in this one. That dab, sweet, sweet outro music pumping. But that being said, I, I, uh, I do want to talk a little about Shivers. I think we've yeah. circled around this some already. Um, and I, I do see, you know, once Casca is dead and we've kind of sloughed off this grim, dark way of seeing the world, then things do get a chance to start getting a little more hopeful. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how it happens with Shy and Temple. We talked about how it does even happen with Logan. Mm-hmm. And now we can talk how it happens with Shivers because Shivers has come all the way back around by the end of this to the same ending he got in the first Law trilogy, which is this position of wanting to kill Logan, getting his opportunity to play a role in killing Logan, which is his big, like, vengeance score thing that actually we know, like, doesn't really have any reasonable basis because he hated his brother anyway, even though we know that his, like, it's just a, like, score for score's sake thing, which we've seen Logan struggle with so much and so many other characters struggle with the Pharaoh and all stuff. And we see Shivers circle all the way back to his hopeful ending of the First Law trilogy, which is, like, maybe I can do better than Logan did. And he steps away without, he came all this way, He's done all of these messed up things, Charles. And then he finds Logan. He takes one look at the kids and he's like, what am I doing? <laughs> and he just tells Logan, I guess I'll just say that that nine fingered man is dead. And it's so interesting for a character that we've seen struggle so much with trying to be a better man. Yes. To actually because he actually asks to... Logan several questions about yeah. like why are you out here and Logan was like tried to make a better yeah. start for myself and because we know Logan's uh, Shivers whole thing was being a better man in Best mm-hmm. of Cold that Logan said He's the right thing to really resonate. Craw. Oh, Craw. Yeah. Who's asking Craw? He was asking. I'm saying he was asking Kernan Craw in, yeah. in the heroes as well. So we've seen this across so many books. Yeah. The Dog Man in the first Law trilogy. Yes. Then uh, he's struggling throughout the whole Best Served Cold with this question and debating Monza and all stuff. And then he goes back the other way to, I guess I'm just a killer, which is kind of what Logan's telling himself <laughs> by the end here. Um, but it's kind of it feels kind of too late for Logan, but we'll we'll see. <laughs> but um, the I don't want to. But anyway, the then we see him in the heroes asking Kerned and Craw, like, "Hey, you're a good man. How's this work?" And finally, he's asking Logan again in Red Country, and he's making the better decision. I don't know. It's like Shivers at least actually listens to people and tries. Yeah. I just love that about Shivers and to see almost this kind of like Casca way of like Casca said, hey, if you give people time, they change back. 
You remember yes. he says that at like the end of Best Served Cold <laughs> when he starts drinking again. But to see Shivers do his version of changing back is to go back to making a good decision. Yeah. The way that he made a good decision at the end of First Law Trilogy is kind yeah. of like, well, if people can revert to these bad patterns of behavior, maybe they can also revert to these good patterns of behavior. Yes. And that's so hopeful for Shivers. Yeah, I, it's I hopeful for the whole First Law Trilogy, too, that like, hey, you know... Shivers is willing to walk away from this whole thing even after we've seen him go so far off the deep end and we've seen him come back like we see him fight with his idea of, of self-worth and the heroes when he was tired of being treated uh, the way that Black Dow was treating him and all these other things and the way he was still inquiring about being a better man and, and then to see him mm-hmm. come all the way out into the red country to hunt down Logan again and then to confront him and realize that he's still yeah. alive and then to walk away and be like, I'll keep it a secret. I don't care. It's like, wow, that's <laughs> so impactful that, he, like you said, we're, we're back to where he started with in the first law, choosing not to kill Logan. But it's so much more impactful. The context behind it is, is different and powerful, even though it's the same thing because of how far he's he's come and and how big of a significance it is for Shivers to to be willing to walk away. Yeah, all said, Charles, man. And yeah. So much more we could talk yeah, about. Shivers rides off into the sunset. Shivers rides there off. is. I mean, but we've been at it for we've been at it for yeah, an hour I think and a half we've over here. A good and point. The rest of the things are minor compared to what we have discussed. And right, yeah, it's yeah, tweet at us. Tweet if you at want us. To We're always willing to talk more Latino. red country. Man, Abercrombie is such a unique voice in the world of modern fantasy. It's just, I'm just continue to be so impressed. Yeah, but yeah, it's really, really great stuff. So I'm super excited to get into the Age of Madness. Right, that's the that's the next yeah. trilogy or the name. A little hatred. Oh, oh. Well, oh, we're gonna do Sharp Ends though, right, Charles? This is actually the time to read Sharp Ends of the short story book. Oh, if we we'll have to do it quickly, because well, um, Wisdom of Crowds okay. drops like September 14th and we have to read two other books before then and we have so many other books mm-hmm. we promised to read so it's going to be a Maybe close we'll one. we'll go back to it. Well, we, we, we might be able to. We'll just, we'll figure it out. We'll have to yeah. talk about it but uh, yeah, I want to, I want to read everything Abercrombie writes because I find it so interesting. When was Sharp Ends like, do you know on the timeline when it was published? Published? It was published in between Red Country and The Little Hatred. Oh, okay. So on, we're so right there the on the timeline. We are going to read it. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So we can decide. I don't want to lock us in on the air to anything. Yeah, but we, I won't read it at some we point. We will read it not, at some point. It's not required point. reading for yeah. moving on to this next series, but it does fill in some interesting gaps. Yeah, I, would, I am interested in it, and we I'm sure we'll check it out. But for now, guys, we're going to have a brief pause on Abercrombie, but not long because we've got to come back to do the Age of Madness trilogy very soon. This has been part of our like year-long read-along up to the Wisdom of Crowds, which drops in the middle of September. So I'm looking forward to starting the next trilogy. Dylan, you've been hyping it up. The whole world has pretty much unanimously agreed that yeah. this is Abercrombie's best work. So I am beyond pumped and excited to to get into it with you. 
Yeah, I'm super pumped, Charles. I can't believe I finally have <laughs> We're here. had the chance to talk Red Country with you. This has felt like, you know, this is my favorite of the standalones, and it's felt like a one that's been preposterously long in coming. I'll also say, Charles, very, I'm very impressed. You picked up on, like, everything on your first read, <laughs> which I think you picked up on a lot more than I did on my first, like Carla and Eider and all this stuff. I don't know, Charles, you're killing it well, over there. I, I had think the you benefit of a... talking about all these books in depth right. afterwards and like researching them and preparing for them and all these other right. things. So it's not like I came into it as cold as maybe you did back in the day. You know, we've had to do a lot of critical reading and discovery. We've dedicated hours and hours and hours to talking about these characters over and over. So I'm, I'm like pretty, you know, well versed in Abercrombie going into Red Country. So I'm like, oh, okay, I, I know all these guys. <laughs> I mean, we've done character studies on like <laughs> yeah, every do. single POV character in the first law. So yeah, yeah, no, that's. It's a pleasure, Charles, and to our wonderful First Law fans. We'll we'll be back talking about all these amazing characters and stories, and we'll do that point of view episode. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're just, I mean, for the run of FTF, Abercrombie is always going to be such a clear staple of our conversation. For sure. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're we're keeping on the Abercrombie hype train. Spread it out evenly into the indefinite future, much like Logan and Shivers riding off into the sunset. Like Mm. so, will all of our Abercrombie discussions as well. (laughs) And now, I believe it is time for you and me Mm. to ride off into the sunset. Charles will. you know, we'll have to pull a Logan and Shivers and temporarily go our separate ways here on the <laughs> on the Zoom call. But that being said, we will find a way to settle further scores, yes. you and oh, I, yes. Charles, as we you, continue we, our we, way uh, through. Just settling yeah. these scores has only made more scores, Dylan, and we've got lots yeah. and lots of scores to go. So uh, I, uh, with that being said, I'm ready to play that sweet, sweet outro music. Let's get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. All right, here we go. Thank you, everyone, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. This has been your co-hosts, Charles and Dylan. If you like what you heard today, find us over on social media at the FTF Podcast with the number one at the end on Twitter and the FTF Podcast on Instagram. Give us a like, send us some messages, let us know what you think. We're always down to chat first law, so please hit us up there. Now, Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they want to support the show even further than social media and they just so happen to be listening on apple podcasts what can they do toss five stars to our podcast just find that friends talking fantasy page on the apple podcast app click the friends talking fantasy page scroll down past all those episodes until you start seeing stars once you're seeing stars the optimal number of stars to click in order to support the show would be five of them if you have a little bit of extra time then writing review is extremely helpful for a podcast like ours but that said just listening is more than enough we really really appreciate it it's good to be back it is great to have you back dylan i'm super excited for (laughs) all the conversations we're going to have in the future but for now as always go forth and conquer friends